You are listening to a message from Mosaic Knox. For more information about our church, visit mosaicknox.org. So, Nikki, Ken, and I, we were watching The West Wing this weekend, and one of the episodes was about the filibuster. And that's what I'm going to try to not do with y'all's time. <laughs> I'm going to try to not filibuster it. Uh, all right. Um, a Lutheran pastor in Germany who sympathized with Nazi ideals came to terms with his own complicity in the oppression of Jews and other groups that Nazis were attacking in the 1930s. You see, at first a German nationalist, Pastor Niemöller believed that Hitler's nationalism and respect for the private worship of the Christian faith made him a worthy leader. Before the horror of concentration camps were made public, Niemöller had a prejudice for Jews because he believed they were responsible for the killing of Jesus, meaning that he was unmoved by their persecution because a bit of him believed they deserved it. It wasn't until the Third Reich started encroaching upon religious liberty and started to dictate who could join or lead a church based on their race if they were non-Aryan, non-white. It was a no-go. And Niemöller wasn't having it, not because he wanted Jews to lead or be in his church, but because the precedent it set was a prophet that eventually he wouldn't be safe from the invasive habits of the Nazis. And it wasn't until years later where Niemöller was targeted, his group was targeted, and he penned this. First, they came for the socialists, and I did not speak out because I was not a socialist. Then they came for the trade unionists, and I did not speak out because I was not a trade unionist. Then they came for the Jews, and I did not speak out because I was not a Jew. Then they came for me, and there was no one left to speak for me. Must we only speak out if those who are being mistreated are like us? Must we only be spoken for when we are in complete agreement with those who have the power to help us? Um, how many of us in here have felt disappointed by the unconcern of our friends and the silence of our God in our hard times? I think these questions capture the season of Advent and the tension we all feel inside, that our waiting for things to get better is in vain. But tonight, I want us to see that Jesus is worth trusting because he's different. He is not like us. But he doesn't let that get in the way of speaking up for us like we do or speaking out against us. He's not like us, and that's good news. But tonight, I want us to see that Christ is not bound by comfort. He's compelled by love. And if we listen, if we realize the depths of what he's come to do, we can also be people who receive and give the liberating love of Jesus to others. We can become like him. Um, During this Advent season, when Israel felt the grim reality of the world the deepest, unspoken for, is when Jesus brought down the aroma of heaven, fulfilling their expectation for a Messiah. And for us today, Christ's second Advent, his second coming, is like a sky of cool water ready to rain over those of us who feel the heat of hell on earth but still haven't seen the kingdom yet. However, before we get to this trust and hope part in Jesus, there are often barriers we stumble upon on this journey of hope in him. The two barriers we're going to look at today are the chaos we suffer and the chaos we spread. The first one is the chaos we suffer. There are many ways we suffer chaos, but one of them 
is when we're going through problems and we experience God as silent. When you first encountered the love of God, do you remember what it felt like to be held close to him? In our text, Isaiah 59, 9b, Israel cries out, so justice is far from us and righteousness does not reach us. We look for light, but all is darkness. For brightness, but we walk in deep shadows. We see here a people who have deep grief and big needs. A people who have known invasion, imperialism, from the Assyrians, captivity from the Babylonians, and the destruction of their beloved temple, which is where God met with them. They suffered deep loss and couldn't feel or hear God. The singer in Psalm 88 concludes his song like this. God, you have distanced loved one and neighbor from me. Darkness is my only friend. Naomi called herself Mara, which means bitter, because her sons and her husband had died. Elijah asked the Lord to kill him, and he pours out himself, saying, I'm the only one left. How often is being alone what sends us to the fear of being abandoned? And it makes sense, right? To be abandoned is to be left alone without support, in despair, without a friend. And it often feels like it's God putting us in those positions. It feels like Jesus, like these prophets are saying, is the one who's been silent. Um, I remember one of the first times I really came to question God's presence, God's nearness. Um, I want to insert a content warning right here. What I'm going to share next, it has to do with um, suicide. So if you feel unprepared to listen to this, uh, no judgment if you cover your ears or move to a space where, um, yeah, you can't hear. Uh, When I was 12 years old, uh, a distant cousin of mine, he went missing. After he went off to college, we saw, saw way less of him. And after some time, his college graduation was nearing and the entire Ethiopian community was counting down the days to celebrate our dear Cal. And a couple days before the party, um, Cal went missing. He was supposed to pick up a couple family members from the airport, but he never showed up. His car was found isolated on the shoulder of a rural interstate and the search party for him commenced. And for 19 days, our community, we maintained the slightest of hopes that our brother, our friend, and our son would come home, that we would find him before anything happened. And to our disappointment, on day 19, we received the dreaded news, body found deceased. No foul play is apparent. We were in disbelief. Um, We never felt anything like that. And we never expected that suicide would be the end of the one who we knew to be the most humorous, loving, and gentle person on the planet. And we cried collectively for months. And Cal's absence still stinks. Up to that point in my life, I was 12 years old. I never found God to be so distant, so silent. Why didn't God help? Why would God allow us to feel such sorrow and loss? Didn't he hear our cries? Didn't God know Cal's concerns? Were we being punished? Why couldn't I see him in this? Um, I've come to discover that the chaos we feel and the chaos we suffer, the instant we're told our beloved was gone, it's never going to come to this neat resolve that you could package with a bow. Uh, no cliches about God's foreknowledge and control over the universe is strong enough to fill the hole of Cal's passing. And I'm finding that where I found healing was not in covering up my pain, but in that horrid entry into doubt in God. 
and wondering if God would eventually demonstrate the comfort of that almighty presence he's got. And when we cried for months over Cal, unexplainable beams of light somehow seeped through our boarded up windows of gloom, kind of like the verse was talking about. All we know is gloom. There is no light. Showing us that God's love and presence was with us throughout the whole process. And those beams of light, they weren't just like these rays of comfort shot into our hearts. They were just nods to us that this mug is going to be hard to recover from. But now I know that when it least makes sense, God is always with us in those gloomy spaces, transforming our stories of pain into testimonies of God's comforting presence. Another way we suffer chaos is by feeling helpless in the face of unchallenged powers. When people in powerful positions know they can get away with harming others. Israel, in this context, faced the destruction of their temple and they were deported to nations that didn't acknowledge Yahweh as God. The horrors that awaited Israel in these lands were intense. They were stripped of their cultures and forced to embrace another one. Their religious identity was kept in Babylon, but only to an extent, right? Remember when Daniel's three friends were pressured to bow down to Nebuchadnezzar's statue? Even in the Davidic times, Israel has known what it's looked like to be bullied and undefended. Think about the many in this country whose ancestors are victims of violent separation and the whims of enslavers whose enterprise lasted for centuries and whose legacies still linger today in policies. Think of indigenous peoples whose ancestors were displaced, deceased, and led down trails that led to their deaths. Think of the many women who are being trafficked for labor and sex right under our noses and the many in D.C. who have the numbers of those ringleaders refuse to stand in the gap. All of us have these stories of experiencing the helplessness of this chaos that we suffer. We've been on the receiving end of no one in power standing in the way. However, a hard pill to swallow is that we ourselves have also been complicit in the harm of others. We are guilty of preserving behaviors that don't resemble faith in the God of Israel. This exact issue is the other barrier to having hope during this Advent season. When the chaos around us is caused by us. The second point is the chaos we spread. The writer of this portion of Isaiah has some hard things to say to this bereaved people. You see, the prophets had special words for different times and different peoples. And with prophecy, sometimes comes the proclamation of hope to return home, of hope to be embraced and tended to by God. And sometimes prophets would have words of indictment. And that's what we see in our text. Isaiah 59, 2 says, But your iniquities are separating you from your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not listen. Sometimes those who have spent, had to spend their whole lives learning to survive the darts of abuse learn to imitate the methods of their oppressors. They choose violence over peace because that's all they've known. Israel was a people that knew oppression down to their very bones. But unfortunately, they look like Babylon at some points in their history toward their own people. In this historical context, these passages are not merely talking about violence in the form of physical abuse and murder either, but extortion and cruelty towards the poor, towards their own. They pushed away the poor. Israel evicted them from their houses unjust, unjustly. Um, now, it is a different context, but even today in the world we live in now, in America, how many are unhoused and unemployed? Not because they're criminals, but because they were born in poor neighborhoods and come from different countries. 
How many people have been evicted from their homes because slumlords raised prices on their rent just because it was legal and they knew that their renters couldn't afford it? The text says their works are sinful works and violent acts are in their hands. They have not known the path of peace and there is no justice in their ways. They have made their roads crooked. No one who walks on them will know peace. Therefore, justice is far from us and righteousness does not reach us. Israel's violence, it created separation between them and God. Their deliberate choice to walk in the ways of oppression was a rejection of God's voice, a sign that God's leadership just wasn't cutting it for them. When we see institutions use their power to shake down others, and we notice in ourselves that the way of peace is not in us by hurting our own, no matter how subtle, we are spreading the chaos while benefiting from a system that creates wealth off of the back end of the poor like it was happening in Israel. And because of these things, Perhaps there's separation between us and God. And chaos is not only spread through our active violence, but also through our passive spectating. Isaiah 59, 16 says, The Lord looked and was displeased to find there was no justice. He was amazed to see that no one intervened to help the oppressed. No justice. No one intervened. In God's eyes, it's not enough for us to only not be the cause of those who are suffering. He expects us to be the solutions to the problems we face. Howard Thurman, one of my favorite mystics, um, mentor of Martin Luther King Jr. in many ways says, it cannot be denied that too often the weight of the Christian movement has been on the side of the strong and the powerful and against the weak and the oppressed. This quote reminds me of how we Christians have a tendency to hide our lack of intervention behind the guise of waiting for our Savior to do his thing, promoting a false hope, all the while letting bullies do a lot of damage, finding ourselves again in the narrative of spreading chaos, even when we don't want to be. Thankfully, these barriers to hope in Jesus aren't big enough to push back against what God is able to do, to drop beauty onto our laps amidst the cute chaos we know. My third point is about the beauty we receive. The beauty we receive. Right after Isaiah 59, 16 says, God was amazed that there's no justice and no one to intervene. We receive some beautiful news and it goes like this. The second part of Isaiah 59, 16 says, so he himself stepped in to save them with his strong arm and his justice sustained them. Him. We know what this means. God intervened when we did it. And the main way I want to talk about the intervention of God tonight is by contemplating the coming of Jesus. Just real quick, I won't hold you for another six minutes. The beauty we receive during Advent is the coming of Jesus. It's so simple, but it's so crucial to our faith. Jesus made his debut onto planet Earth, and here are what a couple New Testament authors say about him. She will give birth to a son, and you are to name him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Another verse, for the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people. The beauty we receive in the coming of Jesus is the grace and the salvation of God. That grace that stoops low and understands our sin and indifference for what they are, tragic and evil. But it is also a grace that accepts that we are not strong enough to save ourselves. 
that we needed someone outside of us who could intervene in a way that we were unable to. You see, Christ interrupted our chaos with his divine self and saw fit to woo us over to the side of justice through compassion for others. He saw fit to ground us in hope with his liberating love that we are not deserving. A dear friend of mine shared a story with me about a time she got this uh, condition in her face that called paralysis, Bell's palsy, a condition that paralyzes you. But she had it for a while and she was starting to get disparate. She didn't know how long it would last. And the droopiness in her face that caused her paralysis made her feel like she was a monster and wasn't beautiful. So in her desperation, she called a doctor friend who specialized with this sort of condition. And over the phone, as she explained, he said to her, I'm not going to lie to you. Um, it's really bad. <laughs> but don't worry. I'm going to take care of you. I don't know about y'all, but this describes my encounter with Jesus to the T. I'm very aware of my sin. It often paralyzes me with shame and makes me feel too monstrous to approach God and too ugly to be loved. But like my friend's physician, my great physician looked at my sin and said, I ain't going to lie to you, Lee. This mess is crazy. (laughs) But don't you worry. I'm going to take care of you. That's what Jesus did in the salvation he gave. This is what I mean when I say Jesus is different. The hope he offers gets at the root of what bothers us about ourselves, our sin, and it provides us with the remedy. His life, his sacrifice, his emergence out that tomb. Knowing our past and present flaws, he sympathizes with those of us who look to him for rescue from our sin and to receive his mercy. Jesus' hope is restorative. He's different. Uh, Me and my friends, when we play basketball or we play video games or stuff like that, something we'll say when our skills are unrivaled. We'll say, I'm that dude. Or I'm him. I'm that dude. To me, I was thinking about it this week. If I were to summarize the gospel in one sentence, other than Jesus is different, another way I would say is the gospel is that Jesus is that dude. No savior rivals him. You want, need your sin taken care of? He got it. You need sympathy for your weakness? He got it. You need concern for your poverty? He's got it. And we in our sin, as messed up as we are, get to acknowledge and be recipients of that grace. KB, my favorite rapper, he says it this way. God, you are nothing like us. I would have left me so long ago. Y'all ever felt that way sometimes? I would have left me so long ago with all my falls, but by your hands, I was caught. The Bible says, apart from the grace of Christ, we are children of disobedience, set in our hostile ways. We put destruction as our destination on Google Maps every day. But Jesus looked at you and he looked at me and he says to his beloved, no, 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 no. They're mine. Their sins, violence and indifference is not all there is to them. Let me intervene real quick and snatch them up from this muck they're in. Let me lift their head when their shame weighs them down. Let me free them from their shackles, chaining them to the cycles of disconnection from me. Y'all, because that baby in Bethlehem loved us so much, he didn't allow his comfort and privilege of literally creating and ruling the universe keep him from hearing us when we protested against the abuse Satan was oppressing us with. He didn't look at us and say, yeah, what y'all are going through is wrong. Uh, I wish you warm regards. Nah, 
He entered a cruel, cold garden and suffered what I believe was depression. When the Bible says he had a sorrow unto death, he inhabited a town whose leaders looked for every reason to silence and crush him. And yet he fearlessly centered the voices and stories of the weak, despite the leaders' wishes. He welcomed and celebrated the faith of foreigners. He valued the poor widow who had no business giving up her last two coins and reality had shamed the religious leaders of the day through her act of devotion because they knew they were supposed to be caring for her, not profiting off of her. Jesus was so touched by the lives of orphans, he said to his disciples, I will not leave you as such. I will come to you. And he said, the spirit of the Lord is on me to bring good news to the poor. This Advent, as we ache to see these very things in real time and often, Jesus is still worth trusting because his grace grounds us in the hope that gives us one of defiance against evil, not just compliance to it. Jesus's grace is not a hug of sentimentality that is unconcerned by the lived realities of the today. No, his grace intervenes, transforms, and it gives hope. I'm telling y'all, Jesus is different. In light of this beauty we receive, there is now a beauty we create. Just one last thing I want to say. In light of this beauty we receive, there is now a beauty we create. How can we, now having received this wonderful grace, not extend it to others? Like the woman at the well, how can we not tell our communities? You see, beloved, God still has the same expectations for us today that he did in Isaiah for us to intervene. That doesn't change. But the difference is once we realize we can't do it alone, we partner with Jesus and intervene with him. This is how we create beauty in our world, by entering in like Jesus and staying when it hurts, not exiting. We resolve to love and to choose peace when violence comes our way. When we are looked at as foolish for serving our community, may we find those criticisms to be signs that we are being the aroma of Christ. And quite honestly, this is something I'm very encouraged about by the Mosaic family. We're a community of believers in Jesus who are undergoing many, many trials. It's hard to stay. It's hard to stick into it. But we're still showing up to sing these songs of hope when we're worn out. We are a people who don't only care about when we all get to heaven, <laughs> but seeing the kingdom of Jesus break into our neighborhoods. And this is all because of Christ's grace, because he entered into our world, intervened and saved us. And we're conduits of that love. Let's pray together. Thank you for listening to this message. If you want more information about our church, please visit us online at mosaicnox.org. 